Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It feels strange to start off a podcast talking about intimate clothing, but that's what I am doing. <laughs> Uh, I am going to talk about our wonderful sponsor, Third Love, who makes bras. And I, yeah, I'm wearing a Third Love bra. I actually genuinely love their bras. Um, I think any woman out there, uh, hopefully, actually, I hope all of, um, not just women, but anyone who wears a bra, I hope you're picky about your bras. I am picky about my bras. Uh, I actually also buy third love bras they gave me a couple to try out you know because they're sponsors but i have spent money on these things what they do that other bras do not do they have half sizes um, which no other bra company has i believe they have over 80 sizes that's including band sizes that go the entire scale almost the whole alphabet and half sizes i am for instance a 32 c and a half which I did not know until I took their Fit Finder quiz, which is another thing that other places don't do. If you want a perfect fitting bra and you're going to a department store, you're going to have to have someone else feel the Jehovah's. Third love, you just take a quiz. You take a quiz that's not just about how big they are or how small or whatever. It's how they look. They give you examples of like, do your boobs turn this way? Do they turn that way? Are they this shape? Are they that shape? And it works. Uh, my third love bras are the best fitting bras that I own. Someone I follow on Twitter who's an engineer uh, once pointed out that other companies should should use Third Love as an example about how to engineer their products. So I haven't read any of the things they told me to read, but I think I have sufficiently talked them up. You should buy some Third Love bras if you are a person who wears bras. My listeners will get 15% off their first order if you go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find that perfect fitting bra. 15% off your first order, thirdlove.com slash friends friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us, unless, of course, division and separation are healthy and necessary. That is perhaps the strongest theme running through my interview with Liz Lenz. Liz Lenz is the author of Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. She is also a delightful presence on Twitter, which is how I first got to know her. She is a amazing profiler of people, including Tucker Carlson, Axios, and um, Alan Dershowitz. Yes, in fact, she, she brings up Alan Dershowitz in the interview. She's a columnist 
for the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and she is a contributing writer at the Columbia Journalism Review. She lives in Iowa with her two kids and, quote, apparently every single Democratic presidential candidate. Stay tuned for this interview with Liz Lenz. Liz Lenz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk about your book. You and I, whether you you may know this, but we have some definite like biographical uh, parallels in our lives. Like I'm from Texas, and I moved to the Midwest when I was in high school. Oh my and, god! And I'm a I'm a Christian, uh, <laughs> and I also am divorced. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't it wasn't a super pleasant divorce either. So oh, um, I don't actually believe there really are. I think people just fake it, or <laughs> women just do all the emotional labor so that the men think it was pleasant. Well, didn't like Gwyneth Paltrow like the <laughs> conscious uncoupling? That sounds That's like it might have been bullshit. okay. <laughs> Like, I just, I do not believe in that at all. There's no way you, even if both people want out, there's no way it goes well all the time. You know, I would say maybe I am just like the eternal optimist because I was going to say, I'm sure there's always pain, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because loss is painful, which we will Mm -hmm. talk about more, I think. Yes. But it, I think there's such a thing as a divorce that, um isn't maybe as contentious as some are. Sure. Maybe there's not always the trauma, but I don't think there's, I think unconscious or conscious uncoupling is a myth (laughs) that just makes people feel bad about their own, you know, struggle and pain, actually. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I think that's probably true because we're just supposed to. Second Gwyneth. Yeah, Fuck her, man, and her <laughs> vagina eggs. Um, this is a by way of getting to your your book. Yes, vagina <laughs> eggs. I'm known for my very smooth transitions and segues. So, um, same. I would really love it if you could read us an excerpt. And I would love to read an excerpt for you. So this comes from the beginning of the book, and it's an excerpt. Actually, that was published in The Guardian, and I just like how they edit it up. Um, So, since moving to Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 2005, my husband Dave and I had attended almost 20 churches. One church we went to never invited us into a Bible study. When I asked a pastor or a Sunday school teacher about Wednesday night Bible studies, I was always told to ask someone else who told me to ask someone else. This went on for five months until one Sunday the pastor preached a sermon about the importance of small groups and said from the pulpit that all we had to do was ask to be invited. We never went back. Or there was the church we visited in 2006 that sent three teams of elders to prayer walk around our townhouse. I sent them packing after I opened the door and asked them what they were doing. Can we speak to your mom? asked one of the older gentlemen in a suit and a tie. I am the mom, I said, and slammed the door shut. They left a flyer under a door and walked around our townhouse, praying once more for good measure. After three years of searching, Dave and I finally ended up at an evangelical free church. There we met other couples and got involved with the youth group. But even then, that church wasn't an easy fit for us. 
Or, I should be clear, it wasn't an easy fit for me. The church was a lot like the evangelical churches Dave and I had attended as kids. Raucous music, a pastor who gave sermons that often included video clips and pop culture references. There was no liturgy, there were no organs, and most of the people who attended seemed to be our age. Few people drank, no one smoked, and they all loved to discuss the Book of Revelation after one too many Mountain Dews at a church party. While I love the people there, I didn't like the church's theology. The church was and is very conservative. Their theology was that of the Evangelical Free Church of America, which doesn't affirm women or gay people as pastors or elder. Strict gender roles were reinforced and even seen as freeing, and everybody was white. As someone who doesn't like to wear brows on principle, I frequently found myself chafing against the strict orthodox interpretation of the Bible and the long lectures I was often given by male members of the church about how if I believed women could be pastors, I was questioning the inerrancy of the Bible. But in those early days of my marriage and my adult life, I thought that these problems were minor squabbles, something to be hashed out over late nights playing board games and drinking wine or wine for me, fresca for the rest of them. It was a breezy naivete born of my childhood raised in an evangelical homeschool subculture in Texas. Until I went to high school at a public school, everyone I knew believed in a literal six-day creation by the hand and voice of God. Everyone believed that being gay was a sin. I was used to being the outsider, the lone voice of dissent. I was comfortable with this role because I wasn't threatened by it. Not yet, anyway. I wasn't gay. I wasn't a person of color. I was a woman, but the gentle grasp of patriarchy hadn't yet threatened to strangle me because I hadn't yet tried to get free. Or perhaps I had, but I was so used to a religion that told me I was wrong and objectionable. It never occurred to me there could be another way. Thank you. Thanks. So... On one level, I think that excerpt gives a perfect snapshot of what this book is about. But I want to draw a little more out of you. Yes. Because there's so much more underneath that introduction. Obviously, there's a whole book. What would you say this book is about? Well, this book began um, right after the church closed, which was uh, late 2015. Just to back up, the church that you started. Yes, I tried. Oh, yes. I tried to start a church. Um, It didn't go well. Spoiler (laughs) alert, it failed miserably and and precipitated the failure of my marriage. Um, So that happened like late 2015. And it was kind of like a last straw for me. Like, this was like my last chance at trying to make church work. Um, and and when it failed and failed so horribly, like one of the pastors literally tried to take over an adjacent Methodist church. Um, it was like a coup. Mm. And it would it would be ridiculous if it wasn't done in earnest. And so— um, and when that happened and when the failure happened, 
I was bereft. Um, the people who I thought loved and supported me were um, telling me that I was a heretic, that I was a sinner, and um, and I didn't know what to do. And so I did the thing that I always do um, when I don't know what to do is I start reading. And I was reading about church closures, and I was reading about faith in America. And this is late 2015. It's right before the caucuses in 2016, in February. And so I was reading a lot about the change of religion in um, specifically middle America where I live. And it felt like something was there. It felt like there was a need for a conversation. So I wrote an article for a magazine called Pacific Standard, which is now closed. And um, that that article kind of like tried to say there's a tension here in religion and America and politics, and it's changing. It's not what it used to be. It's changing us as a people. And um, and so from there grew the book. And I actually, the book was a thing before the 2016 election happened, and uh, which was really interesting because I had seen a contract for the book right before the election and then signed the contract like right after the election. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be an entirely different kind of a thing. But it actually ended up staying pretty tight with the this outline that I had worked out with the publisher. But um, this is just a long way of saying this book is an exploration of what faith means to the heart of our country and the heart of who we are. So there's journalism, there's memoir. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Every good story is a journey. So a journey to the underworld. <laughs> it's interesting the way you explain the book. It, it totally makes sense, obviously. But in the excerpt you read, and definitely, you know, as one gets further into the book, there is another thread that I'm curious. Well, there's a few, of course, like there's lots to it. But I am curious if in starting this book, you realized how much of it was going to be about your marriage. No, I didn't um, realize it was going to be about my marriage at all. Because when I signed the book contract, it was December 19th, 2016. And I remember that because it's my birthday. So if anybody wants to send me presents in a couple of months, (laughs) I will accept them. Um, But I I didn't think it was going to fall apart. And because I didn't know... Divorce is not a thing that I was raised to believe was ever an option. And Mm -hmm. I mean, by that time, you know, I had been living in the world as a normal person long enough that, you know, I was like, fine, it's fine. You know, people should do it. But it wasn't a thing that felt like an option for me. And so I didn't think that... I didn't think it was going to be part of the book in the way that it was. The moment I realized it was going to be, that it had to be part of the book, and that if it wasn't, I was going to be intellectually dishonest, was um, that next July when I spent a week with Baptist ministers in rural Illinois, which is um, a chapter in the book. And I had a really hard time because I had... um, I actually came back from that trip 
and asked for a divorce right after that. Um, mm. <laughs> so uh, the the timing on it was terrible, and um, but I, I was I was having a real hard time just because I was in a place where I was hearing all those words and phrases and theology that had been used against me in such a horrible way, but I was hearing it again used not like directed toward me, but like directed outward toward the rest of the world. And of course it always is, but like I had that separation from it being personal to me being a journalist. And I was having a really hard time emotionally with it. I was going back to my hotel room at night and crying and taking really long runs and then watching forensic files and drinking a shot of whiskey and going to sleep. Like, it wasn't super emotionally healthy. They had also made me sign a contract saying, like, I wouldn't drink or smoke or, like, engage in... uh, you know, uh, I'm curious, but yeah, engage in what? <laughs> like, I think I, I'm trying to remember the word. I have the contract in my Google Docs, but it was because I saved it because I was like, yeah, right. Um, I'll sign it. Like sexual purity? Like, that's, yeah, that's of course yeah, the thing yeah, I'm Yeah, they wanted at. me to abstain from, like, you know, basically fucking around. <laughs> um, and I was like, eh. Give me something to abstain from, honestly. Um, No good options. Oh, my God. Um, But but it was just funny because I had actually signed it thinking, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. Because I was going to stay at somebody's house. But then I was noticing, like, my emotional state was really fragile. And I was like, I'm going to need time to decompress. So last minute I booked a hotel room. Mm-hmm. which was the smartest thing. Anyway, this is just a long way of saying that at, during that week, I was frantically texting with friends of mine who are these incredible writers, and um, and, and I was just dumping everything on them. And one of them said, you have to put this in the book. Mm. And I was like, you know, the the logic is you don't write about, like, emotionally traumatic things while they're happening. You know, you give it space and time. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And um, and, and then my friend, it, it's Elon Green. It's, mm-hmm. So if you know him, he um, he's an incredible writer. And never tell him I said that. But... Um, <laughs> That he, you know, he was like, it's dishonest because this is about the personal and the political. You know, this is about how, you know, what is happening in America is not just this like big, you know, idea that it's about people and it's about it's about individual lives and how those are run through the ringer of ideology and you know and and so and and that's when i was like okay i have to do this mm. um i have to write it all out and and actually because like i was just in a place where i wasn't able to write i basically wrote the whole book in a month mm. wow at a residency <laughs> so like i had written a couple chapters beforehand but then i i was given the gift of a residency. I just sat down and wrote it all out. But it was actually the month I moved out of the house where I had lived for um, 11 years. So, yeah. And I, <laughs> I'd love to draw it a little bit more 
yeah the the thing that Elon put his his finger on, which is, you know, this isn't just like it's obviously perhaps not just a story of like, you know, religion and politics in middle America and then mm-hmm. also your divorce. It's the ways in which the dissolution of your marriage kind of has within it, woven through it, a lot of the same tensions and divides and hurts that we're experiencing as a country. Yeah. The dissolution of my marriage in so many ways mirrored what has happened and is still happening in our country that, you know, it's not like the election happened and then boom, everything was bad, right? Like Mm -hmm. there were problems before and there were problems before, but it was something about this election that exposed the raw center of the divide and made people contend with it. And, um, you know, I always think that everybody gets a chance at like real honesty (laughs) at themselves. At some point in their lives, I believe everybody has to face their ugly self in a mirror and you get a choice. You can either deal with it or you can cover it up and walk away. And I think and America's given has as a as a personality, America has been given plenty of these moments. And sometimes we deal with them and sometimes we walk away. And it's interesting to see what's happening in America now that there's this real desire to deal with it, but maybe not all of it. You know, people want to blame and point fingers, but nobody wants to deal with their own complicity. You know, I think especially white liberals, um, you know, of which I am one. But uh you know, we'd like to point out Trump supporters and be like, you did this <laughs> without, you know, without understanding like what we do on a basic level with like, you know, how we draw like school boundaries and like the low key racism in our own lives and you know, why we still have problems thinking Elizabeth Warren could be electable. I don't know. Like, <laughs> these, are, <laughs> these are some soul-searching moments that I, I, you know, that I think people get to the edge of and then are backing away from. So, so in any way, yes, it was interesting because there were so many key moments of my personal breakdown divide split that mirrored, like, <laughs> tragedies, uh, and scandals in in the White House. <laughs> Was your husband taking emoluments? Is that what you're trying to say? It was he was engaging in quid pro quo with <laughs> Illinois. It was upsetting. I I didn't understand it. <laughs> you know, um it is really fascinating. Of course, it's a, it's a engine that drives the narrative of this book. This this parallel and intertwining of of your personal experience and the the country's experience. And I want to go back to something that was actually in your reading, uh, which is this idea: you're used to being the outsider, the lone voice of dissent. I was so used to religion that told me I was wrong and objectionable. It never occurred to me there could be another way. I feel like one one of the journeys, you know, here is that you start to find your own voice. God, that's such a cliche. But I think it's kind of literal, right? Yes. Like you go from someone who 
Like, I almost want to like push you a little bit about dissent because it sounds like you did speak up, but you also silenced yourself, right? Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. Yes. And, and silence myself because I knew in my heart what would happen mm-hmm. if you say what I'm you I'm not really blaming think. you for that, by the way. Yeah. It's not like no. I'm, I, 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 I give you credit for the dissent that you had, <laughs> but also because I think it's important for all of us to recognize when we choose to remain silent. Yes. I I think silences are so powerful and so important with what they say and what they don't say. Um, I'm always interested now when I go into a church or a place of worship, but what is mentioned and what isn't mentioned, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, not even a church, like a political rally or or a dinner party, you know, what is okay to say and what isn't okay. And often silence says more about the space and the ideology than it does than than the things people talk about. Like, for example, I was at a um Turning Point USA rally oh last night. Why do you do these things? Um no, we don't have chance. So we need to talk about that later. But people ask me that all the time too, why I go to like conservative um, rallies, but yeah, go um, on. because I'm sick, yeah. but I'm in therapy, so don't worry about it. <laughs> but the, but the but like nobody talked about impeachment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, of of course not, but but also shit, you know. <laughs> but uh, so to go back to um the question, which was about like my own silences, was that I think there. And and I don't think I know, especially in uh, relationships where this dynamic is mirrored, where maybe one person is more liberal, one person's more conservative, and you're trying to make it work. And of course, this dynamic happens in families. It happens in workspaces. And in order to kind of like not always be fighting, there are times you choose to stay silent when maybe you should speak up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think especially in the Midwest, right, like we are defined by our silence Um, (laughs) and uh, defined by what we choose not to say. And um, yeah, so there was, and and the interesting, another interesting thing about this book is like from the I basically went from, like, um, a stay-at-home mom blogger to, like, a person who was writing for the Columbia Journalism Review during the span of writing this book. Mm. So so when you talk about, like, finding your voice, it was also, like, finding my career, too, and finding that boldness to say, no, I know what I'm talking about, and— and 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 to fight for, you know, who I am on the page. In a way, like, I went from a person who, like, always accepted an editor's edits to somebody who, like, will fight back now. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to do so respectfully. I try to do it in a way where I'm like, okay, tell me about the core problem with this because here's why I want it on the page. Right. I'm not trying to s- sound like a nightmare, but... I, but I, but maybe I am. <laughs> I have a, a friend who's a professional editor, uh-huh. and he's told me never trust a writer 
who always argues with you or who never argues with you. Yeah. That they're, yeah. that both of those kinds are, are a, sort of a warning sign that there's something wrong with the writing probably or wrong. Yeah. There's something in the relationship that's not, you, you understand. Well, something in the relationship that's not right. Yes. Which if goes you, <laughs> back to, I think, choosing silences or choosing dissent, right? And yep. so, um, you know, I because of my now ex-marriage, I know a lot of women who are kind of in the same situation. And, um, you know, there's a lot of them who are just like, well, I want to say this, but I can't because I know if I say something, there's no coming back from it. Mm. And I think that just like speaks to the power of words mm. and thought you know that like yes and and you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about like oh well you need to you, we need to have these conversations and all we have to do is just have these conversations but i think what we don't grapple with is often for uh people of color queer people or people who feel marginalized in their space, the cost of a conversation can be the cost of your life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I do think that my, my, my editor friend's observation about always arguing or always accepting can be is mirrored in our real lives, right? Like yes. there are times to be silent where being silent is perhaps not just the most expedient choice, but the correct choice. Mm-hmm. Or correct isn't. I don't even. Want, I don't even want to put a value judgment on it. Right. It's right. just the best you can do right now is to stay silent. Mm-hmm. And there are times when dissent or um, just speaking your truth, which is a corny thing to say, but is I mean, I think in a valuable way, different than dissent. Mm-hmm. You know, dissent implies necessary conflict, whereas simply stating your truth, I think, is a way of like. Entering into the conversation with an open hand, you know, like here is what I think, you know, and letting the other person kind of choose whether to make it about dissent or not. But I want to, and there's so many things you said that I want to pick up on. I guess I'm going to sort of affirm this idea that I do think in, in in the Trump era, there are way too many white liberals who are all about starting a conversation, you know, and that that, that a conversation without a place that you're going to, a place that you're trying to get to is not useful necessarily, right? Like, Well, the idea of a conversation is often used as a cudgel. Yes. You know, to say, oh, why don't you just debate me? Why don't you just talk to me? When, you know, to have a real conversation, you need to have mutual respect on both sides. Like, a Charlie Kirk cannot have a conversation with a trans person because he fundamentally does not believe that trans person exists. And that's a violence towards them. And so there's not there's not a conversation happening there, even if words are spoken, you know, back and forth. Even if there's a dialogue, it's not a conversation because you can't have that when one person is fundamentally denying the other person the right to exist, the right to think, the right to be seen as an equal and an intellectual. And I think that gets to like a core problem in a lot of the literature about uh, the American divide right now. It's like, we just got to come together. We just got to kumbaya. Ellen Generous just has to watch some football <laughs> with George W. Bush. And we're all going to be okay without like understanding like the fundamental 
power problems with what it means to have a conversation. This is why I say in the book right away, I don't believe in bridging a divide Mm -hmm. because I think when you bridge a divide, somebody's body is made into the bridge and somebody is some some people are allowed to walk back and forth over that bridge and some people will never be allowed to walk over that bridge you know it's like the idea of like objectivity that you know only works for the straight white male um but you know but like a journalist of color you know is always put on then like the race beat or something like it's this idea of conversations or objectivity they're always used as a cudgel to define what's normal and what's acceptable and so i think i think we have to like understand that power dynamic rather than than using it as like a band-aid i think in your discussion there, you got it also the point I wanted to make, which is a little different than the Charlie Kirk, Ben Shapiro debate me um, <laughs> problem, which is the white liberal problem, yeah. which is the let's have a conversation about race. The white person says to the person <laughs> of color and the white person does the good white, well-meaning white liberal does not recognize that power differential. Right, where we're the person of color is always, like, trying to explain race and or racism. we're asking. We're asking, do this labor. Do this yeah. labor for me. Explain to me. Also, explain to me how not to be racist. Could you just tell me? Right. Could you Could you just look at me and say I'm not—tell me that I'm not a racist? Yeah, that would or, be real great Or give great me an right agenda. Now. Give me an agenda of the things that I need to do because I need a checklist <laughs> rather right. than just kind of the listening part. You know. It's like that Avenue Q song. We're all a little bit racist sometimes. And I think <laughs> instead of instead of like constantly asserting we're not racist, like maybe just like accept that we are and we're gonna be, and then go from there. Right? Can I? I don't I would, know. I want to tell you an Iowa story that maybe also will get into another question I had for you. Look, if it doesn't involve corn, I don't want to hear it. Okay, it might involve <laughs> corn. Okay, throw so, some corn in to make me happy. So this is 2007. I'm covering the primary in Iowa, mm-hmm. and I was on. I think I was on the Clinton bus. Yes, and she was the pro- you know prohibitive front runner at the time. I know, way back when. This is how old I am. I am that many years old. And, you know, I, this is before I discovered how much I hated doing campaign coverage. <laughs> but it I was seems on my way. terrible. I was on my way because I, I did have the experience of, like, if you go to a rally and you try to get quotes, everyone's just going to give you their professional pundit quote, you know? Yes. They're just going to tell you the same thing pundits say. Anyway, so we're at a Clinton rally. I find a picturesque Iowa couple, like, literally the guys in overalls. And a gimme cap, and the the woman is in gingham or plaid, whatever. She, you know, they're grandparent-looking, lovely, right? Like, yes. And I go over, and I ask, you know, so, so will you be supporting Clinton, you know, Hillary Clinton in the caucuses? And they both say yes, mm-hmm. and they explain, again, they actually both did the pundit thing. They're like— well, everything was so great under her husband, and, like, she has experience, and um, I don't know. I can't remember all of the th- things that pundits were saying about why Hillary is going to win at that time. But they say all those things, and I said, well, I'm curious. Like, have you given any thought to supporting Barack Obama? And the very wonderful homespun dude looks at me right in the eye, and he says, well— 
you know, I'm a little bit racist. <gasps> and he just continues on. He says, I'm, I'm a little bit racist. So, you know, not, not really. No, no, I hadn't really considered it. What a raw moment of honesty. I don't think he thought it was weird. Like oh. that, that was actually the part of it that blew my mind. Oh, that he didn't think it was weird to just say, yeah, I'm a racist. I'm a little bit racist. Like um. it was, I don't feel like he was bearing his soul to me. So, oh, God. So I just wrote it down and yeah. I had this actual, this journalistic dilemma because I thought to myself, I could use this and it will go viral mm-hmm. or... I could not use it because I don't think it is helpful to understanding. I don't think this particular person's quote Mm. is going to contribute to the debate. I like used it in some background way, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Instead of as the lead. Yeah. And also not naming the guy, not, you know. Yeah. I didn't want to (laughs) have— People looking for the racist dude at the Hillary rally. Yes. Well, I think that's a. I mean, that I think that's a problem too of like covering a lot of like quote unquote Middle America or mm-hmm. even the South, right? Like that a lot of things have to be contextualized. Um, you know, and, and so like the 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 journalistic herd instinct is you just go, you cover, you say what people say. And boom, you're done. You file and you're done. And and I'm not blaming journalists. Journalists aren't given time or enough money to sit and think, right, and consider. And uh, Lord knows we're not paid enough when we're screamed at enough. But like, but like to to sit with something and then to say, okay, like what context is this happening in? What does it mean? What is what do these words mean for this person in their community in their context? And not to justify it at that point add understanding right and at that point i had just one person saying this and i didn't want to say i didn't want to make this one person like i now have come to believe that that's a probably representative thing (laughs) yeah but at the time i remember just struggling with like i don't want to pick up this one guy right and have it be this is what iowa is right you know and this is what Hillary Clinton's support is? Yes. And yeah. I don't know. Maybe people can argue, you know, I, I may have made the wrong call. Um, well, it's an interesting conversation that w- we keep having in journalism. How do you cover middle America? How do you cover, you, you need these, like, these places that don't, aren't often represented because then there's that idea of Sarah Jones wrote that in- incredible article about, you know, like hunting in Trump land or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great article. And I think any journalists need to read it. We're just like, go, and you're like trying to find like the most crazy racist person yeah, and be like, exactly. look, this is Alabama. Boom. And um, and that happened a lot, uh, especially in the 2016 cycle where uh, people would go to people. I mean, white male quasi journalists would go to a Trump rally and be like, look at all these crazy people saying crazy things. But I had a Bud Light with them. So now we're friends. And look at this dialogue without like fully grappling with like the context of your body in that space. Mm hmm. 
you know, and and what it means to be there and what it means to have people, certain people say things to you or not say things to you. And I, I think about this a lot and I and I don't always get it right, but like I was I was at a rally that was supposed to be like uh, against impeachment and you know, and and I was like, okay, I can write about this where all I do is just like say the crazy things they say, or I can zoom out and provide context of like the scene and what other people are saying. But how do you balance that in a way? And often journalists are, you know, on deadline. So how how do you put a place in its context? It's not like New York City doesn't have racists, you know. Yeah. So, and I looking back, like I do question my own decision yeah. there. Yeah. But I also feel like I talked to so many people at Hillary rallies, and that was the f- first person that said that to me, and the only person that said that to me. And of course, we don't talk about our racism so frankly. Right. <sighs> See, now I'm like second-guessing myself, because and this brings <laughs> us back to you and your book, which is there are times, in, and also this is the other thing about that moment that I look mm-hmm. back on and have doubts about, Yeah. which is why didn't I say something? Like, why didn't I either interrogate that further, you know? Yeah. Or bring up some or problematize it for it for him. Not necessarily again argue, right? Mm-hmm. Or dissent, but rather but just say, say, "What did you? What do you mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? How I you know, often don't hear people describe themselves as racist. Yes. Could you tell me more about your thought process, right? So this was. I'm going to give myself a little bit of like yes. Like forgiveness because it was a long, longish time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, there are times I thought of that story also because there are times in your book where you you choose not to say something to the people that you're with. Yes, those you you make a decision to not say something. And again, I'm not critic. I don't think. Well, I criticize myself. Okay. Well, I mean, then there's a very specific <laughs> incident in the book where I'm sitting with a pastor's wife and she describes, you know, and she starts talking negatively about a gay family who like chose to come into our church, first of all, which, you know, wow. Um, because it's not like that church was like known for its inclusivity. And um and I I mean I push back a little, but then I shut the hell up. And I I I think it's I think we need to be honest with ourselves about our silence and our complicity. And of course I mean this about myself. Um, but I, I think that that's a fair criticism to level against any person. Why didn't you say that? Because if we're talking about bodies and power and space and saying things and not saying things, you know, in that position, I had the power, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm in the group, right? Like I'm not outside of the group. And so it, it and it's then it becomes incumbent upon me to like challenge the toxicity, right? So I'm okay with being criticized by it uh, and about it. <laughs> I just I, I, beat like, me I'm, up. I'm trying to I'm trying to do the open hand thing, like you know, mm, like mm-hmm. here is a thought. Just slap me with that open hand. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> because also we can't beat ourselves up too much about it. Right. No, but I think like, we do need to be. I mean, this is the this goes or rather to never the, mind. Like, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I like it. Um, <laughs> the, no, but I think this goes back to my whole idea of bridging the divide, mm-hmm. and um, that like you cannot 
fix a problem that you haven't fully grappled with. So we have to fully grapple with the problem. You can't just build a bridge over it. You can't just like slap a Band-Aid on a broken leg, right? And that's what we're trying to do right now in America. And it It's a selling narrative because it's the easier narrative. The harder narrative is to sit in the broken place and try to understand what that means and what does that darkness mean and what and when we can fully do that with honesty, um, then I think that we can try to find a way forward. We're going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. So coincidentally... I just received the order that I made from this next sponsor. The sponsor is Grove. They are a natural cleaning products company. And I made this order and I paid for it with my own hard-earned money before I saw that they were going to be a sponsor this week. I order from Grove not just because there are discounts and because there's a wide selection of products, but because I try to support businesses that aren't just that one huge business that everyone buys from that rhymes with Amazon. I try to just, you know, spread my love around. And Grove has great customer service as well. The box that I got yesterday afternoon said, thanks, Anna, on the top of it, written in marker by a person. (laughs) Someone at Grove decided to thank me for my order. And what did I get? I got bamboo straws because I've discovered those are preferable to either metal or glass straws. They don't break and they're not too cold when you put them in a smoothie. That is my ad for bamboo straws. And I also got some other cleaning products that, Yeah, I could probably get elsewhere, but I can buy them in one go from Grove. Uh, And with Grove, like I said, I know the customer service is going to be awesome. And I know that they can tell me the next time I'm through other products I might want to use. And it's not just based on an algorithm. It's based on people. So you should try out Grove. For a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.co, that's grove.co as in Grove Cooperative, grove.co slash friends, you'll get a free five-piece fall gift set from Mrs. Myers and Grove. If you're the kind of person that orders these kinds of things, you'll know Mrs. Myers. I use not exclusively Mrs. Myers stuff, but a lot of it because it smells amazing. So their new fall scents are great too. You will also get a free 60-day VIP trial. For a limited time, you can choose from the best-selling fall scents that Mrs. Myers has, including apple cider, acorn spice, mum, and for the basic among us, pumpkin spice. Go to grove.co slash friends to get this exclusive offer grove.co slash friends. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I want to return to something you said just before the break about the, the easy narratives that, that white people sometimes gravitate to that are comforting, the Band-Aids that we want to use on a broken leg. Because I think there's another one in your book that you are clearly grappling with yourself, which is something that I sometimes call um, racist, but not to their neighbors. So maybe it's okay. Oh, Um, yes. (laughs) 
Because that happens, that you see lots of that ex- in your book. And I'm, again, I want to just sort of interrogate it because it, I don't want to like demonize or, or these people, but it's just a thing. You know, I'm here in the Midwest. I'm, I'm yeah. from the South, or actually, my dad would argue I'm from Texas. That's not the South. Texas is not the South. Yeah. Um, yes. And I see this in my relatives. Yeah. Um, I see it in people, other people that I know and care about, which is this incredibly um, high energy support for Trump, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then I see obvious kindnesses that they do in their real life. Yes. And you discover that a few different times, right? Yes. Yeah. There was one moment where I had, um, it was uh, in the spring right after I'd moved out and ended this very long marriage. And um, it was just a really, it was a difficult time. And, um, I had told a friend, um, she's actually actually like a parent of, you know, a classmate of one of my kids. And, um, and, and I love her a lot. She's, she's very Catholic, has many, many children and, um, (laughs) and is perhaps one of the funniest moms I know, but she, I, I had just been telling her about my divorce she had had one um when she had two kids and and she was like you know what i'm i'm moving to another house and um she calls me her token liberal friend and she she was like i've got some furniture i'm just gonna bring it over if you hate it you can just sell it at a garage sale later but i didn't have any furniture because i couldn't afford it and um and so she sends her dad over who ends up it, I didn't realize the connection at the time, but he he owns a very successful business in town, and um and he had seen the furniture that she was going to give me, and he had been reading my writing, and he had decided that it wasn't good enough for me, so he took all the furniture and donated it to Goodwill, and then went and like bought me this brand new chair brought it over to my house and um and I didn't realize it was like a brand new chair at the time I thought it was just part of the furniture and he came over and he brings me this chair and I have like a sign in my um in my house that said resist at the time somebody had given me one of those like little instagrammable like light up signs where you can like <laughs> change the little letters and so I like to like put things like rise up proletariat on it or you know just the word fuck or something because I'm super mature (laughs) and think I'm hilarious when I'm not. And so uh, that's what I had changed it from like fuck to resist or and and it was resist at the time and he came and had seen it. And it, it was very obvious he's a Catholic businessman in town and he's very conservative. And I mean, he was just full of kindness for me. He got, he got my neighbor to give me their grill hmm. um, like for free and moved this in. It was just like this person of who knew who I am, who knew what I write, and gave me this deep kindness in a time and that I needed it. And and yet, you know, he's somebody who actively goes into the voting booth and votes for cruelty. And 
and probably still will. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the points of my book is that you cannot separate that. You cannot, you know, hand out enough tater tot hot dish casseroles to appease the cruelty that you vote into the White House. But it's a real thing we grapple with in our everyday lives. And especially when we live so closely together as we do in the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, or as I do. Cedar Rapids is the second largest city in Iowa, and yet it is very, very close. Um, I walk into restaurants sometimes like, hello, Dolly. You know, mm-hmm. like, hello, 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 hello. And the person I'm with is like, do you know that them? And I'm like, no idea. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, but it is, I, I, uh, so my friends and I have jokes, you know, like when we go to the gate on the the gate to like go to Cedar Rapids, that last flight to Cedar Rapids, because there's no direct flights. Um except to Las Vegas. Um, But the, you know, if you don't see somebody at the gate that you know, you start to feel a little miffed. Like, what am I doing in this town? Am I not important? Mm -hmm. Um, So that it... It's like this this hyper-closeness. And so, yeah, but it's often, you know, mirrored in towns where they're like, well, you know, we don't want any of that gay lifestyle here, but, oh, you're our gay, so you're fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, and you know exactly what that is. And I think that is, like you said, it's a lie we tell ourselves to comfort ourselves about the bigger cruelties we enact. And... And I guess one of the reasons I felt okay bringing the personal into this political narrative was to say you cannot separate the two. Mm-hmm. That it, when you go into a voting booth and vote for a sexual predator, it deeply wounds the sexual assault survivor who's sleeping in the bed next to you. Right. You know. Even or who's your sister-in-law. If, and if even if I, I'm, you know, the father of a daughter. Yes. And and you also you bring, I mean, numerous examples of this of these two behaviors existing in the same person, your your Muslim friend whose neighbors are so kind to her, but she sees their posts on Facebook, you know, that. Yeah, this happens. Like you said, this happens all the time. And I do think that both conservatives who are defending cruelty and saying yes. it's for the equivalent of like some of my best friends, right? Yes. But also, also there are, there are liberals and progressives who f- who find mm-hmm. comfort in this narrative too, right? Yes. Like, oh, but yes. they're really like, generous. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You can say things like, "Oh, I went to this like climate march. I feel so great about my progressivism, but like I'm okay with like uh you know." like sending my kid to a private school because I don't want my kid going to that school. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah. And I also find myself using it and I see it in the, you know, oh, I have this relative who's racist, but they're so generous, you know, to the local, like, (sighs) scholarship for private school, (laughs) like whatever. Well, it's this, it's so funny because I, I, I recently got to interview Alan Dershowitz and his like one of the things he kept saying was like, nobody talks about my charity. Why doesn't anybody <laughs> talk about my charity? And I was like, because you can't donate your way out of a sexual assault allegation, Alan. Right. Like, right. You, like, that's just not how morality works. Well, what I think is interesting about these these, you know, behaviors that sometimes get put into um, a pairing where the 
portrayed as like opposite or somehow equal and opposite. Right. Is that we, for the most part, I think we liberals are the ones that are trying to reconcile that. Like we're like, oh my, how does does that person both, you know, (laughs) be so kind to their Muslim neighbor and post these horrible racist things on Facebook? What is going on here? How can we make sense of this? (laughs) And the person doing that sees no need to reconcile. Oh, no. Right? Absolutely like, not. It's, it, for that person, it is just completely of a piece. And I think we sometimes, maybe I should say I, I should say, I'll keep it to me, which is that I find myself falling into the habit of like, but shouldn't I be able to like point out the dissonance here? And that person will suddenly realize like, oh, I'm friends with a Muslim, therefore I should be against the Muslim ban. And I don't think that ever works. No, it doesn't because <laughs> you're assuming that they wouldn't, if it came to it, look at their friend and say goodbye, get out of this country. Yeah. And I think that's and I think that's a false assumption for us to make about people that they wouldn't, in a pinch, say, and now you're gone because um, this is you know this is who I am and this is what I believe and this yeah this kind of like idea of like both siderism like oh this person's like professionally cruel but uh, they really love their kids which wasn't that like the defense of like Brett Kavanaugh like oh sure like he did all these terrible things but like he's a really good basketball Sarah Huckabee Sanders also I think got Yes. Well, white women love to do this because they're like, oh, I have oppressed the masses, but like, I'm a mom. (laughs) I'm a mom. You can't attack me. I use my uterus successfully twice even, you know, (laughs) which is truly the dumbest thing because I use my uterus successfully twice. And I don't think it makes me better. You know, it just means that like it worked twice. Yeah. Um, Good job, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's let's talk about white women being both ourselves, Mm, but white mm -hmm. women. Yeah. Because so you and I think have been doing, I can, we're we're earning our white person ally merit badge, you know. Uh, I don't want to. Yeah. Um, I've actually made the point. I actually do believe you cannot call yourself an ally. Like you can aspire to it, but other, only other people that can can say yes right it's like men calling themselves feminists yeah like it's like the moment they do that you're always like watch out for that guy yeah so but you know i think both you and i've been sincerely talking about the problems of of white liberals and the latent racism and white supremacy and all that and i want to draw out that this is something that happens in your book kind of in in real time where you go to this this conference um for uh, people of color centering them in a faith conversation. Yeah, queer people and people of color. Yeah, yeah. So this is a Mystic Soul conference, and yes. tell me a little bit about what happened for you there. So I had uh, been allowed to go to that conference because I had met this incredible journalist and writer, Deborah Jean Lee, and I had talked to her about the book project because she has also written this incredible book. Um, I believe it's called Recovering Jesus, Reclaiming Jesus. And um, and I had read it and then got to meet her. And I was telling her about my book and she was like, you need to go to this conference. And um, so she got me in and it was, and and, and, uh, Debbie's already written about this conference in a perfectly wonderful way. So I knew when I was going there, I wasn't going to like redo her work, right? I wasn't going to like write the journalistic take on the conference, but I needed to talk about it because it is a thing 
in faith that is happening in the Midwest that gets excluded from the white evangelical narrative of faith in the Midwest. So I went there and um, I showed up late because I had a hard time leaving the house on time for a lot of like um, personal reasons. Um, Just being like scheduling was really hard after post-divorce with kids and everything. And um, we'll just leave it at that. But I had finally left the house and like forgotten a million things, drove to the conference, you know, run inside. And there's, there's a, a person preaching about how when we're in a space, we have our people with us. And I, I walk in and I sit down and it's and and the call from uh, the person preaching is to is to close your eyes and think about who your ancestors are. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, you know, my ancestors are women in polyester, like chain smoking outside of like trailers, um, you know, like saying terrible things. Um, I think specifically of my uh, <laughs> late grandma, God rest her soul, who would do this and she would look at my, me. I'm one of eight kids and say, I don't know why your your mother chose to have all you children. She'd be like, Grandma, I'm one of them. Like, calm down. But like those kinds of things. And like, that's the people. Like, those are my people. Just kind of drunk and mean outside of trailers. And um, we, I mean, we didn't even come to the Midwest until like cars were invented and he- houses had heating. Like, not only are we mean and drunk, we're also, like, uh, weak, deeply, <laughs> deeply weak. My bloodline is a weak bloodline, um, a pathetic bloodline. And um, and so these are the people I had in the room and th- with me and that I carry with me, and I didn't want to carry them with me. You know, like, I don't want that to be be who I am, but it is. And, um, and, and so, yeah, part of the book is like sitting there and grappling with, okay, okay, so what does it mean to be from this, to be this? And how do you, how do you call it home? And so this isn't in the book, but one of the things I do is, um, when I moved out, I didn't have any dishes or any furniture, but I, um, right before I'd gotten married, the, the, the mean grandma had died, right before my wedding and um and <laughs> and there was like all this like really kind of cheap bad china from her and nobody wanted it like none of my cousins none of my sisters and so they were like here here's your wedding gift it's a bunch of <laughs> your mean grandma's cheap china and so I had it in this my basement for like years and then when I moved out I was like well I guess these are my dishes now and um, I like to own it in that sense like I use those dishes constantly to say like this is a part of me but I'm gonna take it and use it in a way so like I like to drink whiskey out of those teacups like I like to you know um, um, just abuse those dishes. Um, <laughs> I you know, I use the silver too, uh, like it's in, in the most horrible way. But it's it's a way of trying to grapple with who I am and what I'm doing, and talk to those people um, in, in the language that I that I understand because it's my mother's tongue. 
There's a way you put it in the book that I really, that really resonated with me, which is that um, I understood that my whole life I had felt alienated and confined by the language of more conservative Christianity without even thinking about how my faith, my body, my history might alienate others. Yes. It's this really powerful moment where you go from being the person who thinks about, oh, God, Christianity, this male patriarchy Christianity is so oppressed. I'm not trying to mock you, but like— No. Thinking about how your experience of Christianity has been alienating for you, has been oppressive to you, yes, yes. But also it was keep—and you were also recognizing that this this patriarchy is also oppressive to women of color. I mean, you weren't like unaware, right, of the right. Of the other oppressions, but your, your perspective had a shift, a really— seems to me important well, shift and it's it's a sh- and i think it's 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 grappling with that victim narrative that we mm-hmm. hear so much often and, and i mean it's mostly like pointed out in you know abusive white men mm-hmm. uh, perhaps in the white house who then say oh no i'm be- help help i'm being oppressed and like right. how can you be oppressed you have literally all the power and that was something that i think in kind of coming home, coming into, you know, uh, grappling with, like, who my people are and where I have been in my life was an understanding of how my own body and my own presence has been part of an oppression um, to other people. And, you know, not just like, oh, theoretically, you know, this has happened. But no, like, I have been part of that. And what does that mean? And you know, and and um, and not in the sense of like, oh, woe is me. Now I feel bad, but in a way of like, okay, so this is a reality, and that reality is called intersectionality. So where do you go from here? Yeah, the the other thing that resonated was you realize by participating in worship that through its very makeup and emissions silences and brutalizes others. I've joined the white supremacy. There are no excuses good enough. The only question is, what am I going to do about it? I've had a very similar kind of, you know what, there's no, the best way of putting it is awakening, right? Um, And I have this, I've asked myself these same questions. What am I going to do about it? And I say, out of real curiosity and wanting to, know for myself what are what are you doing what can we do i um this is such a good place to take this conversation i recently had the ability to interview megan phelps roper Mm. who's the daughter of fred phelps who or granddaughter of fred phelps who um who founded the Westboro baptist church and this is the same question i asked of her um, you know, she she grew up in that. And, and I also, I didn't grow up in Westboro, but, you know, uh, I did grow up in deeply, deeply conservative evangelical faith. And, um, you know, and so when you come out of it, you have to grapple with the times where you participated in it when you knew better, you know, and, um, you know, or it, like even if it was like the part you read, even if it was just sitting in silence, um, in a church that I knew was, you know, silencing queer people or people of color, that it was, um, 
that 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 is a thing too and that is not an okay thing and um so i talked to her about what does it mean to atone um which is a deeply spiritual term but one i really like and um so <laughs> i'm tra- i'm talking about it in a bigger way you asked what does it look like for me to atone um and i th- I think uh, it it looks like money. It looks like me giving money to the ACLU and um, different causes. I'm I don't want to like uh, like aggrandize that or you know don't have a ton of it. But um, where I can help out specific people, I try to do so and try to do so in a way that centers them and not me. Um, and so um. And so I, 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 so I, it looks like that. It looks like, um, it looks like trying to find representation in the people who I interview and talk about. It looks like trying to shut up and listen. It looks like trying to, um, to, um, seek out criticism and feedback. Um, it, it looks like a lot of, uh, it looks like a lot of different things. Um, apology growth. Um, there's this thing where a friend of mine was telling me about the Ursula K. Le Guin books. She had like written these, um, you know, these like sci-fi worlds, Mm -hmm. uh, and and that at the time she wrote them, she thought they were like really progressive and like, and then when she comes back to them later, she realizes, oh, actually they still center men. Like there's no people of color here. And then, so she writes more books, but in trying to grapple with the world that she made. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, like, when he was telling me about this, I was like, oh, my God, yes. Like, we have to grapple with the world that we made instead of trying to, like, justify it or pretend like it's not there. Um, I think this book is, in a sense, an atonement. Um so I don't know, um, and it's not going to be perfect, and it's going to change. And I think, you know, I think about the that that like process. It might take many many attempts to grapple with the world that I've made or the world that exists that we've all participated in making. But at least we got to try to change it. And that would be such a beautiful place to end this. But I want to say one more thing, which is that. In hearing you discuss that, I did have a brief little flashback to Mr. Dershowitz, why doesn't anybody talk about my charity? (laughs) And I'm not saying that's what you said, because I actually think that money is really important. And I also, I I tithe as well. But I think that the real work that I do is to ask for criticism. Mm. And to not take the easy way out. Yes. Um, in recovery, we talk about amends and mm. not atonement. But I think they're very similar spiritual principles. Because in recovery, you can't—well, there's a few different things that are interesting. First of all, before you make an amend, you're supposed to be able to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. because. When you go to make an amend to someone else, you have to let that amend, again, sort of be given with an open hand and not asking for something for that person, not asking for forgiveness. 
you need to be able to accept that whatever this person has to say to you, that is for them, you know, and that you have to be ready to do the thing that they ask for. That if this person says, well, because the, the language is supposed to be, what can I do to make this right? Right. And whatever yes. that person says, like, as long as it's like breaking the law, you know, like <laughs> there are some guidelines, right? Sure, sure. But if it's hard, it has to be their idea of how to make it right, not your idea of how to make it right. Yeah. I, 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 yes. But I also think, um, this idea that like faith without works is dead too. So Mm -hmm. yes, uh, that, uh, but I think it has to be like all things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All things. And I never want to like be a person who just talked about things and didn't actually do anything about it. You know, like I really try and I'm trying now that my life is a little bit less hectic, like do more volunteer work, you know, do more of like putting my body out there where my words are. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has, you're right. It has to be all of these things. But I, I also think I'm a writer, so it's easy enough for me to just like sit and write words but I, I want to put my body where those words are. So that's why I also included, you know, like money and those other kinds of a things. Oh, I think, that, yeah. I mean, all of those things. Also, why don't people talk more about my charity? <laughs> 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 why, why can't, you know, the, the four places I've donated to, like, laud me for the 20 bucks that I've been able to send over the past couple of months? Why not? Okay, so Liz, I understand you live in Iowa. Yes, I do. You may not be aware. <laughs> that there is a presidential uh, presidential primary happening in Iowa. Are you, have you seen um, any evidence Michael of this? Michael Bennett is currently <laughs> sleeping on my front porch right now. <laughs> Tom Sire's mowing my lawn as we speak. So, yeah. So one question I have is, is what is it like? I mean, because you're, you're joking about that, but like I've covered, you know, the primaries in um, New Hampshire and Iowa, and there is almost that degree of like let's should be kind call it retail politics right like the sucking up (laughs) (laughs) my friend josh gondelman called it corn humping (laughs) he said politicians come through here and hump the corn for us and it's it's a real it's a real thing Mm -hmm. um yeah, what it's like is insanity. And even like even the most uh, unpolitically connected um, Iowans feel it, you know, because um, I, I went to a, a couple months ago, I was going to go have a glass of wine with a friend and uh, we were getting we went to this 
place in a, in a little town adjacent to us, which I don't know if it'll mean anything to your audience, but it's Mount Vernon. And we were, which is often um, a, a place that politicians like to go because it's adjacent to a highway between <laughs> a couple big cities, but also is like really picturesque uh-huh. as an Iowa small town. So really great for like photographic backdrops. And um, I believe it was also where Beto first stood on a table. Oh, well, there should be and a plaque or something. Thing. I bet well, himself I mean, will put it there. <laughs> he was actually just there last night again, too. But we, um, and, and my friend is has a lot of political ties and connections um, just by virtue of being a person who works in Iowa. And so she, we are going into this uh, wine cafe and she puts her hand on the door and she turns to me and she goes, I swear to God, if there is a politician in here, I will scream. <laughs> and it's just like, there's, I mean, I do feel like in some ways there is that kind of an energy, like you walk into a coffee shop, you know, like in the, in the eight months leading up to a caucus and you're like, all right, which Clinton's going to be in here now, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> and so, um, so there is, and it's really cool. It's really incredible, incredible. It's also really, really, really exhausting. Um, and there is this like level of skepticism, which is so funny for me to read like political coverage because, you know, the reporters will write, um, you know, and then I asked this person at the rally what they thought and their response was, oh, he's nice. And I'm like, oh, that's Iowan for we fucking hate him. But we're just here because we it's a fun thing to do on a Friday night. Like it, it and so like that's it, it's just this really it's this really fun, uh, exhausting kind of a circus. Well, it's, um, you know, speaking of, of Iowa nice, which I guess is related to Minnesota nice, right? Yes, it's uh, the same. It just means like it just means like you'll smile, but then when you go back home, you'll kind of talk shit about them behind <laughs> their back. Which is why maybe re- though you live in the Midwest or Middle America, which I like that that mm-hmm. is actually the term that that you prefer to use. Um, I see the Texan in you. <laughs> I see there is it. strong Texan in me. No, that's true. Which is how I, you got the wherewithal. To mm. be so sassy <laughs> with Mr. Vice President Joe Biden. Well, I need to ask you. Um, so in 1994, you supported legislation that increased incarceration rates and promoted more aggressive policing policies and tactics. And laws like this disproportionately affect LGBTQ people of color. So I want to know, how do you assure the American public that you won't once again support increased incarceration? And as president, will you support legislation prohibiting enforcement from targeting LGBTQ people? Yes, I absolutely will. But let's get something straight. You're wrong about the act. That act was overwhelmingly supported by the African-American community, overwhelmingly supported by the community at large. Everyone from Ted Kennedy on voted for it. It did not have mandatories in it. That's not what it was about. But the truth of the matter is, LGBTQ people are more likely to be arrested, in large part because they find themselves in circumstances where they're on the street. Well, let's talk about other legislation, because in 1994, you did vote for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and in 1996, you voted for the Defense of Marriage Act. You did vote to repeal both of those, but you have also praised Vice President Mike Pence as a decent guy. (laughs) Um, You're a lovely person. (laughs) 
Just asking the questions that people want to know. All right, fire away. I mean, is it really sassy just to do my job? <laughs> but okay, sure. Well, and you know, it's. I mean, what I mean is that it is sort of a. It, it is. And a good, there are so many good journalists in Iowa who are from yeah. Iowa or from middle America and who do ask hard questions. But yes. I will say, Mr. Vice President Joe Biden did not seem to see that one coming. No, I, I think um, often— Because I think I he's pe- used to Iowa, right? Yeah, like, well, no, That see, this is the thing. Joe Biden has never made it out of Iowa alive. <laughs> He's never done well in the caucuses here. And um, that's because we get to know him. Oh, right? like, <laughs> I'm actually not the only Iowan who said that. I'm ripping <laughs> off somebody who doesn't want to be quoted. Um, that's Iowa nice for you. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but it, it, no, it's it's a, it, I don't know. I, I don't know, like, how often you have to come to a place or, you know, that I, I do think there is a lot of things at play here, like a misunderstanding of place, mm-hmm. perhaps, but also um, a misunderstanding of purpose and goals. You know, like if you're coming into a situation, so we're talking about my employer, the Cedar Rapids Gazette, had this LGBTQ forum where we had a presidential candidates come and talk about LGBTQ issues. It was a partnership between Glad and One Iowa and the Advocate, and it was um, an incredible event. And some politicians came prepared and some didn't. You know, and and I don't think Biden came prepared because I think he has been in politics for so long that I'm not sure if he understands he still has work to do. Mm. And if that isn't a metaphor um, <laughs> for all of us good liberal white people, um, yes. I think it's a good one. Thank you so much. This is such a vulnerable book. Uh, you've been so vulnerable with, with me here, and I just really appreciate it. I do want to kind of offer, if I—this is a spoiler alert for people, but I kind of want to, like, tease maybe, which is that you do find a way of reconciling your own faith with all of this. Like, read the book to find out how. Like, that would be— Spoiler like, alert. It's yeah. Lutheranism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. 